Speaking of pastors, I had a buddy, I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. I had a buddy, I have a buddy who uh, was called in by his elders one time and threatened with the loss of his job when he was a youth pastor because he had cracked the nut and now, God forbid, gang members and risky types were showing up at youth group. And the elders said, don't you understand that we bring our children to this church precisely because we want to keep them from those kids at school? And now you've made our church, well, you've taken it to the place where it's not even safe anymore, and you've brought those kids right in here to our refuge. And they threatened him with the loss of his job if he didn't get things straightened out. You know, that's actually an ancient complaint. It's not a new complaint. It's a complaint by religious types that's been in the works for some time. We're going to be today in Luke chapter 15. That was one of, I mean, we read most of Luke if you're on the reading list and staying uh, staying up with it this week. But we'll go to Luke chapter 15. We're going to park right there in Luke chapter 15. It's on page 964 if you want to use the Bible that's under the seat in front of you, or if you have your electronic version or your own Bible, just go to Luke chapter 15, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third gospel, about the middle of it. Pardon me. I've got a little cough. Luke chapter 15. And listen to the Pharisees making that very same complaint their century's version of that very same complaint to Jesus. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. And Jesus heard the muttering. And he has a rather severe answer for them. He answers the religious community through three parables. One parable wasn't strong enough. Two parables wasn't going to get it done. And each of these three parables comes from a different angle, as though he's almost trying to punch them in the face and make sure he doesn't miss either side of the cheek or the chin. And each of these rebukes is told in the form of a parable, but it's designed to address the prideful, missionless heart of a group of people who would call a youth pastor into a meeting and threaten to let him or her go precisely because that youth pastor was doing exactly what the church was always meant to do. Are you with me? Does that make sense to you? But it is risky business. You know, being a faithful spiritual community, a faithful Christian community, a Jesus community, demands everything that's written in our vision statement on these walls. It demands a willingness to engage, which means you're in the same room together. It demands the ability to perceive spiritual hunger and in humility to recognize, hopefully, that you always have spiritual hunger. But to look at people and say, boy, there might be something that we can offer that can care for them because they're searching for something in life, and it absolutely, most definitely demands being inspired, intelligent, 
and involved, inspired, filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, because this is an impossible task to be able to engage with your culture, not be uh, necessarily aligned with your culture and every one of its convictions, but still fully loving and engaged with. And it takes intelligence. It's the, intel- it's the lazy church, the intellectually lazy church that says, we don't want to be forced into the rigor of having to figure out how to do that. We would rather just dispel everybody and make no room for everybody who isn't on the same page with us, and then life is a whole lot easier. It's one-dimensional, it's not so complex. We don't wanna be at the table with the very people who would like to stab us with the fork. We don't wanna do that. So there's no room for you here. It takes intelligence to figure that out, and it takes being involved in a world that hasn't figured that out. To engage with the spiritually hungry toward a life in Christ, it's inspired, intelligent, and involved. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in the way he answers that challenge. Either quit bringing those kids around here, spoiling my kids, or we'll get somebody else who will. Pretty, pretty important stuff for Jesus. That's why he gives not one or two, but three parables in answer to this. He's arguing that the church must be willing to be tainted by humanity and to stay tainted by humanity. I call it the holy art of being tainted by humanity. Here's the first parable. It's the parable in Luke 15 of the lost coin. And the way I'm looking at this, now in parables, interpreting parables, got to be a little careful. I'm going to actually break a rule as we move through this message. Parables are not historical references. They're, They're illustrations. They didn't actually happen. They may have happened in life, but they're not presented as having actually happened. They're presented as stories that the teller is making up to represent a point, trying to get a point across. And so one of the mistakes we can make as we're interpreting parallels, parables is to go into too much detail about the parable and teach from the detail because it actually makes a pretty general point. All three of these parables, Jesus tries to make the same point and the point is pretty simple to get. Because look, if it's lost, I'm interested in it. If it's hurting, I've got room for it. If it's hungry, I want to feed it. Why are you hanging out with Pharisees and tax collectors? Why aren't you keeping yourself pure by means of exclusion? And the parables mean to make this one point. It's because it's the sick that need the doctor, and I'm the doctor. I've got to be around these folks. But I want to go into a little bit more detail and violate a rule, potentially, because I find it interesting. Jesus may not have meant to go this far, but I find it interesting that with each of these parables, each of these aspects of the answer to their complaint, he identifies, or at least uh, infers understanding of a different way to be lost. It's as though, to me, he's choosing his parables in such a way that he can say, no matter how somebody is lost, no matter whether it's tax collector, Pharisee, uh, 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 because of a sickness or whatever, there's room at the table. And here's the main point that I'll give you before we even go any further. If there's room at the table of Jesus 
for people that would just as soon reject him, despise him, hurt him, stand against him, then there ought to be room in every church for people like that. Every church. And if there isn't, that church has ceased to be truly and fully Christian. We need to be intellectually astute enough, theologically astute enough, spiritually alive enough to say, you don't have to agree with us to come and sit with us and enjoy all the benefits of knowing us, and we'll have benefits from knowing you. We can handle that. Let's talk together. Let's figure this out together. It's an impossible challenge, and that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's the first parable, the parable of the lost sheep. It says, then Jesus told them this parable. Remember, all of these are in response to the complaint. Jesus, you're hanging around with unsavory people. Why are you doing that? So Jesus answered by saying this. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends together and his neighbors together, and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not repent. And let's understand exactly how those who offered the complaint would have heard this message. I have more joy, and that's the theme in all three parables, rejoicing at the end that something that was lost is now found. And that rejoicing is, is powerful. You can't miss it in any of the three parables. But they would have heard it like this. I rejoice over someone who's humble enough to know that they are lost and need to be found. Way more than I rejoice over somebody who's pretending they're found and don't really know that they're lost. And what do you think the Pharisees would have heard Jesus say when he said that? He would have heard, they would have heard him saying, you arrogant, blind, religious, prideful messes, you. I have no joy in your religiosity and complete joy in some limping, soured, broken person who was, as is the thing you might picture in this parable, who was sort of with the flock and saw some green grass over here and got turned a little way while the flock when the shepherd were over here and then thought, whoa, look at that. Whoa, look at this over here. Oh my goodness, look at this grass over here. And it, hey, where'd the, where'd the flock go? Where's the flock? And they run up and they can't see the flock or the shepherd anyway, and they're lost. They were, they were seduced by the lights and the sirens and the opportunities of the world, and they were being foolish, but it wasn't anything malicious. They just saw all sorts of opportunities and were pulled away by something. Uh, shepherds would have understood back in that time that nine times out of ten, a sheep who was lost like that, separated from the flock, would have, once it recognized it was lost, it would simply just give up, lay down, and wait to die. And so the shepherd needed to go out and find it because it didn't have the capacity on its own to take initiative for itself and go look 
for the way the flock went and reunite with the flock. Jesus is saying, man, when you've been seduced by the lights of the world and enticed away, I've got room for you when you return. And there's going to be celebration when you return. You're not going to come back when you come back to me to a prideful, shaming reception. Where have you been, you idiot? Spend four months in faithfulness before you're sort of emotionally reunited with us. In fact, I'm going to be the one who carries you back. We live in a world of constant and strategic, purposeful seductions, don't we? Promises of greener grass can cause us to be so focused on the bells and whistles all around us that we lose our perspective and we can eventually lose our way. And God stands with open arms to welcome back, even pursue the person who's been seduced away from the faith by the sirens of opportunity. And here's the main point. So must the church. Second parable. Because one obviously wasn't enough. The church must also be willing to be tainted by the humanity of those who have neglected their faith. So the first was just a foolish innocence. Excuse me. The second parable addresses neglect. This is someone who's not paying attention to something quite valuable. It's the parable of the lost coin. Somebody who's not paying attention to something very valuable, not treating it with the value it deserves, and it ends up being lost. Listen to this parable. I can read these two because they're relatively short. The parable of uh, the prodigal, I'll, I'll just kind of walk us through because it's too long. But listen to this one. Parable of the lost coin. Now he goes from one to the next to the next. All of this is an answer to the statement, why do you sit down with Pharisees and tax collectors and soil yourself by having them at dinner with you? You're even laughing and eating and be with and befriending them. The parable of the lost coin. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. This would have been in this story, would have been understood as Jesus saying, uh, suppose... A woman has um, 10 days' wages, each represented in a coin that she was paid at the end of a day of work, and she loses one of them. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house, even though it doesn't need to be swept, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one repentant sinner. This isn't somebody who just innocently wandered off because there was greener grass and the next thing she knew she was here and the flock was over there. This is somebody who's been not paying attention to something that was really valuable. And, you know, I mean... I mean, in a sleepy stupor, came home one night and put her 10 coins on the dresser, and then the next morning, waking up to turn off the alarm and scrambling for the alarm, knocked one of them off, and it fell behind this, 
dresser and she goes to get the money maybe a couple days later to put it away and she realizes where there used to be 10, there are now nine and she panics and she says, oh my goodness, where is that 10th day's wages and starts searching for it. This is about neglect. This is about having something immeasurably valuable and treating it as though it's common. And then realizing later that wasn't common at all and I want to find it. We were in uh, Capernaum and got to visit what was reportedly the house of Peter. And over the top of the house of Peter, as is the case with every assumed holy site in Israel, there is a church that's built. And you walk into this church building, and in the middle of it, there's a railing, and you're looking down through glass or a plexiglass, down straight into the ruins of what is said to be the house of Peter. And the floor of that house was often made out of stones that were common in the area. Everything there is made out of stones. And it was very common to lose things in the cracks of those stones. In fact, during the excavation of what is assumed to be the house of Peter, they uncovered, unearthed, found coins that had fallen in the cracks of the floor. So imagine this valuable commodity lost because of neglect or mistreatment. And then you realize, where is it? I need to re-find that. I've lost it, and I must re-find it. You know, life's about choices and priorities. And often the most beautiful and valuable things in life get placed in the back of the line because of the decisions we've made or the lies we've believed. And then one day we wake up and I realize something that's precious to me is missing. And that happens to faith sometimes too. Like a valuable coin that was unceremoniously placed in some forgotten nightstand and then lost. In this parable, we're talking about people who haven't really cast faith out into the streets, but they haven't cherished and protected it for safekeeping either. They're lost in that way. And the sadness of losing that precious gift is substantial, but it doesn't compare to the joy. And here we go with joy again. The joy of rediscovering it. Kind of like the story of Nathaniel Ayers in the movie The Soloist. Did you see the movie The Soloist, Jamie Foxx movie? Nathaniel is homeless and demented, He's a street person now, but through engagement with a reporter, he rediscovers the beauty of what he had learned while he was a student at Juilliard and somehow lost. Do you get the pathos of that? Earlier in the film, he's playing on a violin with only two strings on it. It's graffiti all over it. Sounds more like an angry tomcat than a violin. And this reporter comes and meets him. And later in the film, we have this scene where he's handed an instrument that is his first instrument that's in tune and it's beautiful. And he plays it. And it's as though he realizes this has been in me and it's been lost, and here it is again. Oh, how I've missed it. 
And you have these scenes of freedom. Birds flying, beauty, dirty nails, scarred up hands, itchy knees, and beauty. And in this parable of the lost coin, Jesus is saying to people who are complaining about who's been invited to the table and who's allowed to eat dinner at the table even before they become uh, people worthy of the dinner, Jesus' answer is, look, there are people who have simply misplaced their faith, devalued it, not taken care of it, and they are lost And when they come and find themselves and they seek their faith again, when they hunger for what was lost, I want to help them rediscover it. There's always room in my heart for somebody who has simply lost their faith. And there's room there before they rediscover their faith. And if there's room at the table of Jesus for somebody like that, there had better be room in the church of Jesus for people like that. But two parables is not enough because now, man, this is the big right-handed hook. Because the church must also be willing to be tainted by the humanity of people, not who have simply wandered off and been seduced by greener grass, not who have sort of accidentally and by neglect devalued their faith. But the church must be willing to be tainted by the humanity of those who have consciously rejected faith, who have aggressively opposed Christian faith, who have said thumbs down to Jesus, who if they had a picture of Jesus, a poster, they would put it on the wall, they would use it as a target for their darts. And there must be room at the table of discussion over theological matters and engagement and relationship for those folks too in the church. Why? Because there was room at the table of Christ for them. The parable of the prodigal sons, plural. You have the son who left and the son who stayed. And both of them are rather lost. You have the story of a son who says to his father, look, I'm the second born. My brother's going to get most of what the inheritance is. I want my portion now, and I want out of here. And so the father with a broken heart says, well, okay, and he gives him his portion. Now, this would have normally not happened, but this is a story. It's a parable. Remember, Jesus is trying to make a point. So hearts are already turned upside down hearing this story. And he takes that inheritance and he leaves. And he goes and he squanders it. And one day he wakes up realizing that he wishes, he's so hungry and so destitute, he wishes he could just eat the pig food that he's throwing into the troughs of the person for whom he's working. And he has a realization, he's, man, I... My father's servants got treated better than this. I could at least go back to my dad and say, can you hire me to do this on your ranch because it's a little cleaner, it's a little nicer, I have shelter, at least I have clothes, I'd like to be one of your hired servants. And so he comes back after initially in so so much as saying, I wish you were dead, go ahead and die and give me your inheritance even though you're not dead. 
Such a huge disrespect. That would have been a tremendous embarrassment, that kind of rejection for the father in his culture. And everybody here in the parable knows it. And the prodigal son, the younger son, comes back, and the text says that while he's still walking up the trail, all beat up, disheveled, looking way worse than Jamie Foxx did in that movie, the father's obvious, obviously been looking for him every day because he sees him coming, and he doesn't just wait for him. He runs after him, takes him up into his arms, kisses him all over the head and face, hugs him, squeezes the breath out of him, can hardly wait to get back to the house, orders that a, an animal is slain and they have a big party and everything stops on the estate and a party's being planned. Why? Because this one who rejected me has decided to come back and engage with me. Of course, the older son is the other prodigal who's not as well known for the story. And that other prodigal has just left the father in a different way. Because he's the one that represents what the Pharisees were complaining about in the first place. This son... This child, this, this child of yours, does all that he did, embarrassed our family name, rejected everything we were, might as well have just changed his last name. It was like he was saying to us, I wish that you were dead. Let my older brother take care of everything without my help. Goes off, spends that fortune that you gave him on crazy living, now he comes back and you're making room at your table and in your home for him. And not only do you say, yeah, sure, come on, go ahead, we'll give you some clothes. You throw a party for him. I've been here all these years. I've never left you. I've never shamed you. I've never embarrassed you. I've stayed with you. You've never thrown a party for me. And the Pharisees would have understood exactly the point Jesus was making. Jesus is saying, even for people who have wounded me, even for people who have denied me, even for people who once were a part of my family and then left my family, there's room for them at my table. There's a seat for them in my heart. No matter how much more complicated life is in our family because we invited them back, we must welcome them home. And if there's room for those who reject Christ in the heart of Christ, then there doggone better be, well, better be room for those who have rejected Christ and been the enemies of Christ and been wounders of the church at the table of the church. This church must be a community full of people who are fully committed to Jesus, wondering about Jesus, maybe even hesitant, about Jesus and rejecting Jesus, there must be room for the whole array of folks. Why? Because there's room in the heart of Christ. And at the point in time where we start asking questions about, well, why are they here? Why do we make room for them? Why do you ask them to be a part of our community? Why do you let them in? How come you don't correct everybody publicly when they don't have everything just right? I'll tell you why. It's because Jesus is too full of love to worry about that stuff in public. He sits down, maybe he pulls up a chair next to somebody at the table and says, hey, let's talk about this or that in a private conversation. But listen, folks, 
on the day Marin Covenant Church forgets to make space for everybody in this community, whether we agree with them or not, on the day we do that, we are a lot of things. But a Jesus church is no longer one of them. Do you hear me? Never again should the church say to somebody, there's no space for you here. Because Jesus never said that. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, all of those are answers to the question, why do you associate with people who disagree with you, who are against you, who seem to be not very religious at all? And Jesus says, because I came to seek and to save what was lost. And if it's lost, I'm interested in providing an opportunity for it to be found. In short, the church must acquire and protect an ability to be in the culture, but not of the culture, while still passionately loving her culture. Impossible. Just it's impossible. Because neither one of those values can be compromised. Jesus didn't compromise either one. The church is a people that is in constant need of washing by the blood of Christ precisely because it's a people that is constantly being tainted by its own humanity. Do you get that? There's a humility in following Christ. We are a nappy-haired lamb hoisted over the shoulders of our shepherd. We are a dirty, dusty coin that weeks ago was carelessly knocked behind a battered old dresser. We're a stinky, barefooted, formerly rich son who's limping up the road of the house that he rejected, hoping to be hired by his dad to feed the cattle and sweep their stalls. We're a community where the lost can always get help while trying to find their way back to foundness. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. And we hear through those parables Jesus saying, well of course I do. I crafted every earlobe and formed the shape of every chin. I built the ventricles of every heart. How in the world could I ever say, you're not welcome? Of course I make space for them. And so will you if you choose to follow me. That's the message offered these prideful, missionless Pharisees. It's the fine and holy art of staying tainted by beloved humanity. And God help the church that ever forgets that. 